to the Weird Warriors podcast. I am Max. I am Rich. And on this podcast, we will be focusing on the Weird War Tales comic book series published by DC Comics from 1971 to 1983. Have to wonder who the next comic creator will be to be so blessed by our meddling. Oh, wait, it's Jerry Grandinetti. I added a creator photo and first quote, quote, flower to his find a grave page back in September of 2022 as well. He's interred at Calverton National Cemetery on Long Island, and I aim to visit that site someday as well. If memory serves, my request for a photo of his headstone for that page is the reason that it's there. Also, spoiler alert. At the end of this episode, you shall get the name of Mystery Mystery Creator Remembrance Number Two. Intel Report, 1941, The Illustrated Story, a graphic novel published by Heavy Metal in 1979 for the Steven Spielberg directed movie of the same name, starring such luminaries as Dan Aykroyd, Ned Beatty, John Belushi, John Candy, Christopher Lee, Tim Matheson, Robert Stack, Mickey Rourke, and others. The movie script was written by Robert Zemeckis, Bob Gale, and John Milius, and adapted by Alan Asherman for this work. Art by Stephen Bessett and Rick Beach. A week after the disaster at Pearl Harbor, a panicked Southern California is convinced a Japanese fleet is going to come steaming over the horizon any minute and attack. This is a slapstick take on the chaos as an underprepared country gets ready to go to war. Lots of killjoy and the Old comics, man. Bell rings real loud in these pages. But honestly, I don't know if that's a 1970s thing or a reach for 1940s attitudes towards the Japanese. I do need to do a quick history minute for this Intel report, however. The film is loosely based on actual events that took place along the West Coast of the U.S. in early 1942. The Battle of Los Angeles, also known as the Great Los Angeles Air Raid, is the name given by contemporary sources to a rumored attack on the continental United States by Imperial Japan and the subsequent anti-aircraft artillery barrage that took place from late 24 February to early 25 February 1942 over Los Angeles, California. The incident occurred one day after the bombardment of the Elwood oil refinery near Santa Barbara by a Japanese submarine that fired about two dozen five-inch rounds into it. Damage from the shelling was negligible, but played a role in the impending infamous Executive Order 9066 that interned Japanese-Americans along the West Coast. Later in 1942, Fort Stevens, Oregon, was also shelled with minimal damage by a Japanese sub. It's now a state park, and I've been there. Initially, the target of the aerial barrage over L.A. was thought to be an attacking force from Japan, but much later was determined to be a weather balloon. And once one gun started firing, nervous trigger fingers from other guns joined in. Five civilians died during the raid from car crashes and heart attacks. Every February, the Fort MacArthur Museum, located at the entrance to Los Angeles Harbor, 
hosts an entertainment event called the Great L.A. Air Raid of 1942. That just sounds like a freaking blast. <laughs> Pun intended. I'm shocked that you haven't been. But uh, <laughs> that, as usual, great stuff. I, I, I think I saw that movie once when it was available on VHS, and you make me want to go back and check it out again if I can on one of the 17 streaming services I'm no doubt subscribed to. But anyway, that awesome little history minute and Intel report and retroactive history aside, we're going to take a short break, give you a chance to catch your breath, and take a listen to an ad for another cool podcast out there. And when we get back from the promo break, we'll take a look at the issue at hand. Adventures into the unknown. Tales from the crypts. Skeleton hand. The haunt of fear. Dark shadows. Vampirella. The haunted tank. The heap. Eerie. Swamp Thing. Weird Mysteries. Tomb of Dracula. Tales of the Unexpected. Werewolf by Night. The Demon. Man Thing. Monster of Frankenstein. Brother Voodoo. The Son of Satan. Night Force. The Living Mummy. The Sandman. Tomb of Darkness. Evil Ernie. Saga of the Swamp Thing. Flinch. Hellblazer. Thirty Days of Night. Preacher. The Walking Dead. What do these titles have in common? All of them. From Adventures into the Unknown, to Tales from the Crypt, to the House of Mystery, to the Tomb of Dracula may be found in the long box of darkness. I'm your host, Herman Lowe. Join me every Monday night for a journey into comic book horror as we delve into the secrets of the long box of darkness. So listen if you dare, puny mortals, to the long box of darkness, available on Stitcher, iTunes, and Podbean. And check out the blog at www.longboxofdarkness.com. Good night and pleasant screams. <laughs> As I said before the break, we will be taking an in-depth look at Weird War Tales number 38. And to start off that in-depth examination, Rich is here to hit you with the cover detail. Joe Kubert on art duty. 25 cents. The green Weird War Tales blends well with the shadows on the cover. Under the light of a full moon in mountainous terrain, an American patrol advances. From behind a boulder in the foreground, what appears to be a classic horned helmet Viking, 
with a skeletal face and wearing furs, waits in ambush to plunge a sword into the point man. Cover date, June 1975. Date of release, March 18th, 1975. Killjoy, as noted in multiple previous episodes, if this guy is Viking, they didn't have horned helmets. But, as we shall see in the last story, he might not be. All right, comments and commendations on this cover. I just got to say, this is more like it, Joe. This is moody, atmospheric, full of menace. This is a full-bleed, silent image that captivates the eye, pulls you into the scene. The layering of colors in the foreground, middle ground, and background provide an even greater sense of depth. And the weird part of the Weird War logo looks like it's stuffed with little green army men. I love it. The detail's fantastic. I'm I'm back on the horse, riding high on the Joe Kubert covers for this series. Hallelujah. Yeah, that's a good call out of the Little Green Army, man. I hadn't noticed that. You made me go back and look at the cover when I read that. Like, oh, yeah. Yeah, that does work, doesn't it? Kubert's art here is incredible and does a great job of portraying a sense of night-born horror. Whoever survives the initial ambush will probably run screaming from the scene. Vaguely reminiscent of the first issue in the title, I have nothing but sympathy for the Americans. This is a Weird War Tales cover. That it is. And Rich is going to let us find out if this is going to be a Weird War Tales issue by taking us into the first full-length story provided herein. Herein. Born to Die. Six pages. Script by Jack Olick. Art by Frank Redondo. It wasn't that Schneider feared death. He could die once and be done with it. What he feared was that he would live again. And if that happened, he would die again and again and again and again. In his dream, Wilhelm Schneider saw his blood-stained corpse lying in an open grave. He saw himself turn and saw himself die in an explosion. How can a man see himself dead and buried and alive all at the same time? Small wonder he was jeered at by his lieutenant while waiting in an ambush. You dare ask for a transfer when we have that American patrol in our sights? Get back to your position. But Lieutenant, I beg you. I had the dream again last night. I've been in these woods before in another life. If I go on, I'll die just like before. My dream isn't just a dream. It's a prophecy. Another soldier snarled and called Schneider a coward who made up an insane story to hopefully get out of combat. Schneider insisted that he isn't afraid to die but how many times must a man die and be reborn? If he could only break the chain. The angry lieutenant ignored Schneider and ordered his men to open fire, destroying the U.S. patrol. Later, Schneider recognized the road his company was marching on as the one that led to his grave. One of the other soldiers was getting sick of Schneider's fairy tale, but Schneider continued to insist that it's true. The road went to an old American World War I military cemetery. A U.S. observation post was on top of the hill inside of it, and the Germans had orders to capture it. Schneider was horrified. He knew the hill like he knew the wood. This was where he was going to die. He begged the lieutenant to turn back, but the officer had had more than enough of Schneider by then. The lieutenant not only ordered Schneider to make the attack, he also ordered the rest of his men to shoot Schneider if he ran or hid. One of the men admits it would be a pleasure to do so. Schneider wasn't a coward, and he followed as the officer led the attack. 
as mortar shells rained down on the Germans, Schneider was forgotten. No one saw him fall when a shell exploded directly behind him. In the fight that followed, the outnumbered Americans were wiped out. Afterwards, the lieutenant was startled to be informed that Schneider had been killed. Strange. He really did know he was about to die. Investigating, he found Schneider's body lying across the grave of an American soldier, Private William Taylor, killed in action in 1918. But all the officer could do was shudder and wonder what war Schneider was, would die in next time. For Wilhelm was the German spelling of William, and the English translation of Schneider is Taylor. It seemed Schneider had found his grave after all. Killjoy, History Minute. I've often mentioned my love of military graves throughout the history of the show. I had to do some research and see if there was actually an American Private William Taylor that had been killed in action in Belgium or France on March 3rd, 1918. The answer is no. That being said, I did find three American Private William Taylors that were killed in action in France in 1918 and were buried there. I also found six British Private William Taylors that were killed in action in Belgium in 1918 and 41 that were lost in France. If you assume those with the first initial W were also William, you could add 24 more. As an aside, I also did some quick research on the American Battle Monuments Commission website to see if any American World War I cemeteries were damaged in World War II. Ain Marne has over 2,200 graves in its memorial chapel or honors over 1,000 missing. That chapel was damaged in heavy fighting in 1940. It was repaired after the war with the exception of a single shell hole left to serve as a reminder. No private William Taylors are buried there, but there is a sergeant that died in the flu pandemic, lest we forget. Comments and commendations. I've mentioned before that Frank Redondo was the Sergeant Rock artist I grew up on, and the art in this story took me all the way back. This is what I remember, especially page three, panel three of the GIs being mowed down in the ambush. I also dug the star of David Marker on page five, panel one of the assault through the cemetery. The skeleton being disturbed in the mortar blast is a nice touch too. Olick and Redondo craft a great tale of death and reincarnation. A fear of the doomed German soldier and the irritation of his officer tired of his crap was so well done too. Better luck in your next war, Bill. Two thumbs up. Oh, hell yeah. I'll give it up right up top. This is how it's done. Starting right off with the opening story title logo host panel. We are off and running at speed. The excellently rendered skeletal host pairs nicely with the bombastically lettered logo. And man, that splash panel, it's almost a page, but hey, they divided the top and bottom, so it's a splash panel. It's nothing to sneeze at either. There's action, emotion, depth, and most of all, a theme for, for this story with the clarity in that panel. And that's a point I could make so many times when talking about this tale. Redondo's art is detailed, it's immersive, it's action-packed, but it's still clear all the way through. His storytelling is smooth no matter what that script throws at him. I liked the dotted line transition panel on page two, panel three, between the description of Schneider's dream and the present. On page three, panel two, Redondo drops the level of detail on the lieutenant's close-up, which makes his face really pop out of the page, enhancing the urgency of his command to attack. 
Page five is just loaded with goodness. Rich already mentioned the skeleton, but there's the silent explosion, and I'll get back to that element later in the in the issue, in panel two, which brilliantly outlines Schneider's tragically unnoticed figure and its passing behind the lieutenant. It's just great. He's like an afterthought. It's just, it's perfect. And let's pause to acknowledge the writing here in that panel. He did not look back, and so he did not see. He did not see that coming, did he? Mm-hmm. I mean... <laughs> I am very proud of Jack Olick for that one, intentional or not. Also, in panel three, we are treated to the company plunged on through an inferno of screaming death, which is one of the best potential band names I have ever stumbled across in a comic book. And on page six, panel five, I just got to mention that the meaning of Schneider in English was a really well-timed revelation for me as I just started reading Joe Simon, My Life in Comics. And in the beginning of that memoir, Joe writes that he and a lot of his fellow comic book creator types back in the day were the children of Schneiders, meaning tailors, you know? So yeah, I, I kind of like this one. Not bad. So let's see if the string continues. I'll take us into the next little short story. It's called The Renegade Dog Face. It's two pages long. Script is by George Cashdan. Art is by Jack Sparling. Synopsis goes like this. It's World War IV, and a fleeing GI can't understand why all of his buddies are trying to kill him. Dodging fire, he hopes to find a unit of sane GIs, but three tanks cut off his flight. Pleas for mercy are ignored, and the GI screams as one of the tanks crushes him under its rollers. The tank's driver asks the colonel how many men the GI had killed before losing his memory and going berserk. Graves' registration is still counting, is the reply. But hopefully, it'll convince those fools in Washington that robot soldiers are a menace. No telling when their circuits will go askew. As the tank rolls off, they leave behind. A destroyed GI robot with its human faceplate falling off to reveal circuitry. Ta-da! Rich says there's no killjoy on this one, so I'll take his word for it, even though I know he has a time machine. Comments and commendations, I'll take the lead on this one. I'll say, okay, in a stunning reversal of fortunes from the past couple of episodes of this show, I got a lot more out of this little number than Rich seems to have. Spoiler alert. First of all, I really like that opening splash panel, which includes the story logo and host this time around. I like the sense of chaos and confusion delivered both visually with the mist and all that, and in the poor dog faces thought balloons, as well as the apparent joy being taken in by our helmeted skull of a host. As Marge Simpson might say, it's just neat. Panel two on page two is just gruesome and how clearly it depicts the slow crushing death of the dog face with his eyes bulging out right at the reader. You can imagine even just from the pressure of the crusher, the rollers as they start crushing his body. And as Rich will also mention, kind of, the sound effects in this story, in my opinion, are just great. In all but two of the main story panels, we get treated to big, bold, unashamed, totally fun sound effects like the death tanks, clank 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 and so forth. I said I'd get back to the silent explosion comment from my CNC on the first story, and it's just that the complete absence of sound effects in that tale worked just as well for me as the abundance of them here. 
just fits the tone of the story. One was more silent with that. This one was covered in fun sound effects and, and it worked. As for the message of the story, if folks listen to our coverage of World of Weird War Tales number three from 1997, I'll just say this story carried much the same implied message of new toys by Grant Morrison and Frank Quitely, but it did so with a lot more clarity, punch, and fun than Grant and company were able to manage. It's a perfectly fun little two-pager, in my opinion. In your opinion. Yeah, sorry. The joys of two-page duds. Sigh. My favorite part of the story is page two, pen one, of the tanks closing in. They remind me a bit of what Leonardo da Vinci designed as a tank way back in the day. Also seen in episode 24, see the album. That said, the tanks moving around on massive rollerballs like that, I have to believe they wouldn't be making clanka 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 sounds. They had a hovercraft whirring humming noise or something? I don't know, maybe it's just me. You're the robot guy, as I recall from the robot issue of Weird War Tale 6, so I don't doubt you got more out of this than I did. But sorry, yeah, this one just didn't do much for me. It's just like Rich to reveal a, a killjoy when he said he had none. He's killjoying the the uh, theoretical sound effects of a, a space or a, a futuristic roller tank. Good job. So with that little two-pager out of the way, Rich will take us into the next shorter story in this issue right now. The Return of Rich. Three pages. Script by Jack Olek. Art by E.R. Cruz. Over the centuries, mankind's endless wars have spawned thousands of strange tales, but none more eerie or macabre than the story of The Return. November 30, 1823. Forty Greeks, led by an Englishman, leap from the battered sloop Hercules onto the shore near Mislongi, Greece, to attack the Ottoman Turks occupying their homeland. Marcos asks the captain to stay behind where it's safe, but the lame Englishman refuses. I died here once and I will again. I still must fight for what I believe. The fighting only lasts an hour and the Turks are routed. Later, the captain talks more to Marcos. I died here in Greece before and will again. Perhaps that's why I've always loved freedom. Freedom was born in Greece. Part of me has always been here and always will be. I must die here. The handful of patriots have no chance against a full troop of counterattacking Turkish cavalry. Caught off from the beach, the surviving Greeks fight their way out of town. Weeks of vengeful pursuit follow. Weak with fever, the captain collapses and later dies, telling Marcos that he was glad to die in Greece once again. His body was eventually brought out of the hills and shipped home to England, but his heart was removed and interred in Greek soil under a stone that read, sacred to the memory of George Gordon, friend of Greece. Captain George Gordon was a great man whose words will live on forever, a genius known to the world as the poet, Lord Byron. Killjoy, history minute, like you didn't know that was coming. This is a mostly true story. George Gordon Byron, January 22nd, 1788 to 19, April 19th, 1824, known simply as Lord Byron, was an English romantic poet and peer. Born with what was commonly referred to as a club foot, he walked with a limp his entire life. He was one of the leading figures of the romantic movement and has been regarded as among the greatest of English poets. Among his best-known works are the lengthy narratives Don Juan and Chilled Herald's Pilgrimage. Many of his shorter lyrics and Hebrew melodies also became popular. 
Byron is educated at Trinity College, Cambridge, later traveling extensively across Europe to places such as Italy, where he lived for seven years in Venice, Ravenna, and Pisa after he was forced to flee England due to lynching threats. Later in life, Byron joined the Greek War of Independence, fighting the Ottoman Empire, and died leading a campaign during that war, for which Greeks revere him as a folk hero. He died in 1824 at the age of 36 from a fever contracted after the first and second sieges of Misolonghi. The period of practice of bloodletting is believed to have aided in his demise, much like George Washington. Comments and commendations, just like Don Quixote from last issue of Weird War Tales. I didn't know a thing about Lord Byron before I read this story and did the required research. Only this really happened. I don't know if he believed in reincarnation or not, but it made for a good plot device. The story itself didn't do a whole lot for me, but I am a fan of E.R. Cruz's art. As I said in the past, lots of dialogue covered up. Lots of it, though. Uh, makes it hard to call out a favorite panel. I guess I'll go with page one, the splash panel of Byron leaping into the surf to join the fight. Yeah, you will. This is turning into one hell of an issue for splashes. Just look at that thing. Action, adventure, leaping into battle from a still landing sea vessel, sabers and cutlasses held high, and top hats! Our skeletal host is wearing a top hat! Haberdashery aside, if we must do so, the art is just lush throughout here, too. Like the best of the illustrative styles of the golden age of newspaper comic strip artists. There may be an abundance of lettering in these panels, as you mentioned, I admit, but it still couldn't hide the sheer level of craft going on in these few pages either for me. Take page two, panels one through three, where the shifting perspectives on that one conversation keep you visually engaged while guiding you through the space and the focal points of the moving action of the events. It's just brilliantly subtle work. And, and I admit, the ending for me was kind of, huh, but I was having too much fun that I didn't mind much. And I was also confident you would dig up historical background on this. I'm just wondering, in real life, did they really yank his heart out of his body and buried in Greece? Or is it more like I left my heart in San Francisco kind of thing? Actually, yeah, from, from, the, from the limited research that I do, yeah, they actually took his heart out of his body and they buried it somewhere in, in Greece. That was a no, I'm not kidding moment. They actually did that. <laughs> A man left a detailed will. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess after, after that more historical story, I'll take us into the land of pure fantasy, as I am often wont to do, with the final full-length story in the issue. This is called The Man Who Would Be God, and it's not about me. It's seven pages long. Script is by Jack Olick, and art is by new favorite of the show, Jess Jodlamet. Now, I'm going to step aside and let someone else kick off the synopsis first, and, and you'll see why. All mankind bowed before the hordes of Shamar the Barbarian and cringed before his magic. Yet even then, he could not be content, for still one obstacle remained beyond the reach of the man who would be God. Thanks, Rod. So this is a vague cover tie-in, as promised leading his army from atop a horse, Shamar, who I keep being tempted to say like Shamon or something, like a Michael Jackson thing throughout this, but I'll, I'll call him Shamar because that's his name. He's pleased to watch the last city that had defiled him burn. Now 
He alone ruled the world, but one of his wizards thought otherwise. Not all the world, my lord, but only men. There is still one that rules even you, our god, Thorgeld the Terrible. Take heed in your pride, he doesn't hear your words. The Shamar, 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 but Shamar is unafraid. Some unseen demon that dwells within a cave? Speak not to me about gods who hide away in darkness. Here on this earth, all power is mine. When the horrified wizard warns Shamar of his blasphemy, Shamar strikes him down with an axe. Shamar's men then surge forward into the city to slay, pillage, and burn to their heart's content. The city's survivors, now slaves, are then forced to rebuild as Shamar revels in his power. But men are not content to be slaves. In city, town, and hamlet, revolts flare up. A furious Shamar demands his wizards find an answer. The suggestion Thorgeld might be responsible is met with vehement disdain. Shamar gives his wizards three days to end the insurrections. Seems fair. The penalty for failure is death! Of course, <laughs> three days pass and the revolts continue. So one wizard a day is beheaded despite pleas for leniency. Desperate to live, the last wizard tells Shamar that Thorgeld is the one barring his path. For as long as he exists, the people have hope. Shamar must kill Thorgeld, but he is wary, recalling the wizard's warning not to cross the god. The wizard stands by his warning. No one had ever returned from Thorgeld's cave. The risk was great, but Shamar is surely greater than Thorgeld, and he goes to prepare for the coming battle. Going to the cave fully arrayed with weapons, Shamar descends down, down, down into the bowels of the earth. He finds Thorgeld sitting on a throne, holding a golden sword, a hideous green beast with horns, claws, and wicked teeth. Long have I known that you would come, and why? he exclaims, and yet one choice I offer still, go back and live or stay and die. Which shall it be? Shamar hurls his ax at Thorgeld, who deflects it away. Your time has come, false god. Time, fool, here in this cave, there is no time, no past, no future, but only now. Shamar pulls his sword and the battle is joined. How long the titans struggle, neither knows. The very walls of rock give way before their fury, but in the end, there can be only one winner. And it is Shamar bringing his sword down on Thorgeld. From this day on, no man will dare raise a hand against me. I am a god. Wearily returning to the surface, Shamar is shocked to discover only a barren wasteland. The trees, the city, everything is gone. And Shamar recalls what Thorgeld had said about there being no time in the cave. How many eons had passed while they'd fought? Tears glistened on the tyrant's cheeks. Indeed, no man on earth will ever again stand against him. For how can man oppose his will when of all mankind, he, and only he, still lives. So again, Rich claims there's no killjoy. We'll wait for his CNC to see if he means it. So I'll do my CNC first since I had so much fun reading that. 
It's a clean sweep of kick-ass splashes in this issue, folks. Ring the bell, hit the buzzer, whatever needs to happen. If I wasn't so lazy, I'd insert a celebratory sound effect right here. I'll, of course, give full kudos to the, you guessed it, story, title, logo, lettering, favorite thing of mine, and the hunkered over husk of our hairy-booted host up top. Top-notch stuff. The scripting work is pretty great all through this one, too. On page one, panel three, where I read it in the synopsis, but I'm going to say it again, Shamar's speak not to me of gods who hide away in darkness is just classic. Jodleman doesn't take it easy here either. Even if Shamar is putting up his feet on the backs of two unfortunate young women on page three, panel one, while he observes the performances of two apparent twin ladies dancing before him, he just it's full effort in every panel. That one panel alone has so much detail in it. It's just fantastic. All I'll say about panel two on that page is that it's a great example of a narrative caption working with the art that's on display. The city is a carnival of savagery and death this bleak day. Indeed, <laughs> page four, panel one features an excellently dynamic panoramic panel effect. You follow the motion of the axe across the panel, leading into its effect on the other side of the page. So good. The contrast in scale between Tiny Shamar entering the massive cave on page five, panel three, works well with the massive figures of Shamar and Thorgeld in the very next panel too. So page six, and I'm going on here, but give me room, people. Freaking love this issue. Is the page six, all of it, of course, is just stunning. It's a continuous battle between two figures captured in separate moments in time, all in one flowing panel until the outcome is revealed at the bottom of the page. There is no sitting around on the job here. Jodleman came to work. There's an abundance of creativity on display in these pages. As the journey out of the cave that takes place on page seven, panels one through three, uses a similar slices in time effect as page six, but with panel borders used to good effect instead of the, instead of the awesome atmosphere of chaos from the previous page. I'll wrap it all up with a superbly rendered closing panel, and I am one happy little reader. This is Conan meets Rip Van Winkle as far as the elevator pitch goes, but the end result was far better than that. Crom! Okay, so he's a barbarian, not a Viking. I retract my cover Killjoy. I have to ask, is Jodleman getting better? I want to call out a panel on every page of this story. His work is amazing. I'll be good and call out only three. The lower right corner on the splash page of Shamar channeling his inner Conan, page two, panel four of the city being burned and pillaged, and page seven, panel six, the skeletal narrator in barbarian garb holding the sword with Shamar looking small and alone in the middle of the wasteland are phenomenal. I anticipated Max going all hog wild on this one. Good story. Bullock goes three for three on full length writing duties on this issue. Even if it does strike me as maybe being about a page too long, not my genre, but I can't hate on this one. Two thumbs up. Yeah, good call uh, with the anticipation of me going hog wild there. <laughs> you know me well. So with that awesome issue out of the way, the story content's done, everything was fantastic. Let's, let's take a trip over to the mailbag, the letters page, a little section that the magazine calls the APO Weird War Tales. Rich? Yes. 
One of our letter writers, Mark Schmieder, bags on Jonathan, bastard. So just on principle, I'm not going to do his letter. Instead, we are going to do John Elliott from New York, New York, a regular contributor on these pages. And this is his latest bunch of grousing. Dear Joe, you win some, you lose some. Why Weird War Tales number 33 had to be such a poor issue when you had the sterling example of number 32 before, I'll never know. The cover was under par on all counts. The art looked rushed, and the idea of a skeleton lying in wait is rather a waste anyway. Pride of the Master Race was the logical lead, since it was the high point of the issue. Jack Olek turned in a competent script, although one filled with his usual mistakes, and Jess Jodleman did a fine art job. The unknown soldier bit was good and represented a nice parallel to your own American unknown soldier in Star-Spangled War stories. I did a little nod to that. The rest of the mag, however, was just a pair of losers. My spirit, your executioner, had an old premise and an uninspired art. It would have been a lot better idea to spend the five pages on a science fiction idea instead of loading the issue with three World War II stories. And the Great Brain Robbery was a totally wasted seven pages, art-wise, certainly. I don't even know if the script was any good because I couldn't get past Bernard Bailey's quote-quote art. Indeed. (laughs) Considering this was your first issue at a new higher price, you could have done better. John Elliott. Well, yeah, I kind of find it hard to disagree with him on much for the Great Brain Robbery. But otherwise, yeah... I got to go against John on most of this stuff. I, you know, Pride of the Master Race was, you know, solid. The Unknown Soldier nod again. My Spirit, Your Executioner. Again, I mean, I, I was, wasn't going to be as huge a fan on the interpretation of the ghost, um, how the ghost was, was illustrated. But I still think that that was a great, you know, Vengeance from Beyond the Grave story. Old premise, uninspired art. Man, this is another one of these guys. It's just like, I like it my way and everyone else, your opinion sucks. I just... John Elliott. At least you give us something to talk about, man. I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll give you that, if nothing else. Uh, he gets points for consistency, I guess. But my letter that I'm calling out, it kicks off the letters column, and it goes like this. Dear Joe, hey, now this is the kind of comic I like to write about. I'm talking about Weird War Tales number 33. It was pretty good. Now let me tell you why I didn't say it was pretty great. You're thinking, here we go, all right? He goes on to say, it was the art on all the stories except the one Jess Jodleman illustrated. The rest of the artists just weren't working up to par. I've never liked Jack Sparling's art, and my spirit, your executioner, was no exception. I loved the story, though. In fact, I positively adored all the stories in this issue. Bernard Bailey did a fair job on the closing story, but it really looked rushed. So he's being nice there. Now, for the best tale in the issue, Pride of the Master Race by Jack Olek and Jess Jodleman. Olek is a great writer, one of the best in the field. I bought both of the House of Mystery paperbacks he wrote, I still want to find those, and really liked them. And the story was superb. The art was some of the best I've seen in Weird War Tales, and I hope you let Jodleman do more stories than he's been doing lately. He really puts in a lot of detail, and that's what I like. And this letter came from Ken Meyer Jr., Hill Air Force Base, Utah. Editorial response from 
one of our Joes, is John Lemon's back in this issue with the man who would be God. And we have two or three more Weird War Tales stories with his art all ready to go. However, that might not please our next correspondent, who was Mark Schmieder, who we're not going to even, no, we're not going to mention his name any more times because he's a bad person. So that's the, that's, that's the letters page. Yeah, I, I liked uh, Ken's letter because it's balanced feedback. He disagreed with me in places, but he had gripes, but he had, you know, he had some balanced feedback with positives too. And he praised Jodleman, so, you know, he's not completely crazy. So that's the APO Weird War Tales section out of the way. So now, as we do on the show, we're going to move on to our spotlighted ads for this issue. And I'll kick it off. There is a Stalker and Beowulf ad between pages two and three of the Man Who Would Be God story. Here we have some sign of the attempted fantasy adventure line of titles during what was briefly called the DC Explosion, quickly followed by the DC Implosion. It all started more or less in 1973 with the aptly titled Sword and Sorcery series. That one largely adapted Fritz Leiber's Thackbert and the Grey Mouser stories into comic book form. But it was soon followed up in 75 by, well, an explosion of great titles like Claw the Unconquered, Hercules Unbound, the Stalker and Beowulf titles featured in this very ad, and <laughs> The Lost World of the Warlord, which debuted in 75 as a feature in first issue special, but went on to run as a series from 1976 to 1988 thereafter. It's one of my favorite comic books of all time. Considering the closing tale of this issue, the appearance of this ad within these pages seems quite appropriate indeed. Verily and forsooth even. There you go. That's my ad for sure. In the centerfold of the comic, there's an ad for Johnny West. Johnny West wants to put you on his most wanted list. Johnny West, the big action cowboy, is rounding up names now to put on his two terrific wanted posters. These posters look like the ones that frontier marshals used to catch outlaws in the days when the West was actually wild. And you can get both posters with your name printed right on them. Just buy one of the more than 20 different Best of the West characters. Cut out the name of the character from its carton as your proof of purchase, then send it in with $1 and the coupon below, and we'll send you two 9x12 wanted posters with you as the bad guy. Johnny West, like all the exciting Best of the West characters, can really move, bend him, twist him, turn him, make him ride, fight, and shoot. He comes with over 20 pieces of authentic, colorful clothing, equipment, and weapons. Everything for any adventure you can think up. Every one of the Best of the West figures comes with lots of detailed Western accessories. You'll never have to buy any extra gear for Sam Cobra the Outlaw, or Fighting Geronimo, or General Custer, or Jane West, or Thunderbolt, Johnny West's favorite horse, or any of the other characters. So get a great Best of the West action figure and send for your two great water posters. And <laughs> yeah, it's just, Johnny West and Thunderbolt look like Woody and Bullseye from Toy Story. And me being me, you know what I would do with Geronimo and General Custer. <laughs> they got two wanted posters up in the upper right-hand corner. Wanted, $5,000 reward, your name, for bank robbery. Won't reward, $10,000 in gold coin will be paid for the apprehension of your name, dead or alive. This is just outstanding stuff. Stuff like this, when you go through these old comics, this is the stuff that you're looking for right here. The coupon expires July 30, 1975. 
damn it. <laughs> Dude, I'm so glad you picked that one because I was torn. Like, I'd never heard of these toys at all. I don't think I've ever seen an ad for them before in my life. And I, the, the ad itself is just a two-page gold mine of good stuff to look into and talk about. But I was, you know, my heart belonged to that Stalker and Beowulf ad. So I'm like, I really hope Rich picks Johnny West. <laughs> and there it is. You, you got it. So I got to I got to have that included in the show because, man, I, I was almost going to betray my beloved uh, sword and sorcery comics and 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 read about some toy line I'd never heard of. But you got me. You got my back. <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd never heard of this one either. Mark's Toys from Stanford, Connecticut. Attention, Jane West. I say, hey, there you go. <laughs> I wonder if that's a coincidence. I'm kind of okay. I was hard, I'm hard pressed to believe that it is though. She runs the front office. <laughs> uh, Their six the, shooter and leather purse. The Flo Steinberg of Mark's toys. Oh man. So those excellent ads topping off an excellent issue. We're going to move on to a foregone conclusion of a section of the show that we like to call the last words. A great rebound from the Weird War Tales 37 Don Quixote issue. Some typical two-page space filler track, but I have very little to moan about when it comes to the longer stories. Born to Die channels my inner teen years reading rock. So for nostalgia alone, I have to pick that story as my winner for this issue. Solid letters page, ad selections, only helps this one along. High marks. Dang, if this wasn't just the thing to pull me out of the nosedive I've been in lately, this book was awesome. I'd have to agree that the first story is the best, as Redondo really knocked my socks off in particular with his work. But it's a pretty close race, so I'll, I'll be loyal to my tribe and nominate the man who would be God, as the difference in rating between them is pretty slight for me there. So thumbs up issue. This one's another one I would hand to someone as an example of the series. I put my best foot forward and I would hand them this issue. So there you go, folks. I'm pretty sure you could have figured that out on the way down, but that's our official verdict. So now we'll move along to the dead letter office, a little social part of the show where we uh, will first remind you that over on redbubble.com, you can visit the Weird Warriors podcast PX Search the Weird Warriors podcast on redbubble.com, and you can get our awesome logo drawn and designed by Bill Walco of the Hero Business online comic strip on just about anything you could possibly imagine. Well, maybe not, but I don't know you people. All right, I'm keeping my eye on you. All right, so go do that. Get yourself some cool gear. And then while you're wearing it, drinking out of it, running your mouse across it or whatever you want to do with it, you can go to Facebook and you know, give us a high five like these people did. The Deer Watchers podcast. Awesome, awesome podcast. There's going to be a lot of podcasts on here, people. The Stop Let's Team Up podcast uh, by my buddy Ross. A World on Fire, an All-Star Squadron podcast by Billy D and a rotating host of, of guest hosts. We got Peter Watson of the Earth 2 podcast. Billy D himself. Martin Gray of the Too Dangerous for a Girl blog. If you want to keep up with current DC comics, that's where you go. Tim DeForest of ComicsRadioBlogspot.com, Luke Giaconetti of the Earth Destruction Directive, Bill Mooney of the Weird Warriors podcast Facebook page, a constant 
commenter and companion and colleague of ours over there. And the Magazines and Monsters show, yet another podcast by Billy D and friends. He's a busy guy. Over on Gmail, where you can find us at weirdwarriorspodcast at gmail.com. We got a couple of letters from some of our buddies. Our first letter is from the aforementioned Tim DeForest, and he says, in regards to DC and Marvel African-American characters fighting in white units, Gabe Jones with the Howling Commandos might be justified if you assume that the Howlers were handpicked by Nick Fury and not even the Allied uh, not even the Allied High Command was willing to say no to Nick. After all, would you say no to Nick Fury? I wouldn't take my chances. Uh, Gus Gray is an unusual example, Tim continues. In GI Combat number 159, the haunted tank led an armored column on a behind-the-lines raid in what would be a failed attempt to liberate a POW camp based on a real-life failed raid ordered by Patton. This led to an extended storyline in which Jeb and his men are trapped behind enemy lines. Gus was a prisoner in the POW camp who joins up with them in issue 160. Two issues later, longtime crewman Arch is killed and Gus takes over his position. By the time they get back to Allied lines in 168, Gus is now considered one of the crew by the others. Whether he would have been allowed to stay with the crew in real life is sadly unlikely, but the unusual circumstances and the acknowledgement during the story arc that the military was usually segregated, so they did mention it, does give some justification for it. Tim goes on to say, I was very happy to hear you discuss a Captain Storm story, and so were we. I love any story with a PT boat in it. As a child, I read two different young adult novels about PT boats that gave me a lifelong love of those crafts. I was eventually able to find both books as an adult and discovered I had great taste in literature as a kid. Both are great novels, and he sent pictures of them over uh, The Hostile Beaches by Gordon D. Shireffs, that's S-H-I-R-R-E-F-F-S, and Torpedo Run on Iron Bottomed Bay, which is a great title, was by John Claggett, C-L-A-G-I-T-T. Tim finishes up saying, It should be noted that, based on the number of PT boat stories that appeared in The War That Time Forgot, Close to 60% of PT boat missions during the war apparently involved fighting dinosaurs. Well, I mean, that's a good use of time if you ask me. I know Weird War Tales ran some War That Time Forgot tales late in its run, but you guys should cover one of the early ones from Star Spangled War Stories. You know, it just might happen. But uh, I'll let Rich say anything he wants about this letter and, on, and continue on with our second as well. Well, I don't doubt that we'll get into one of the Star Spangled War stories at some point here. But but actually, uh, going back into uh, the whole PT boat thing, for a while, the National World War II Museum down in uh, New Orleans actually had uh, PT boat rides on, on uh, Lake uh, Pontchartrain. They were sto- fully restored a World War II era PT boat, and you could take freaking rides on it. Now, I don't, they don't do it anymore, unfortunately. I don't know if, if you know, COVID slowed things down or whatever, but the boat has physically been, been removed from the water, and I think it's just on permanent display uh, on land in the museum, which is unfortunate. I mean, you know, the World War II Museum down in New Orleans is obviously one of, like, the top three destinations in this country that I need to get to that I haven't gotten to yet. <laughs> and that would have been high on my list of things to do. But unfortunately, it appears that they do not offer said rides anymore. So, but yeah, that would have been a freaking blast. <laughs> Talk about a photo opportunity for you that's now gone. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I haven't even been in New Orleans yet. So that's, that is on my list. 
the National World War One Museum is in Kansas City, I think, and that's on my list also for multiple obvious reasons. But anyway, continuing on to our letters page here, uh, Mike Stewart reached out to us and said, episode 40 was another good show and a nice derivative of the topic while still remaining in the show's wheelhouse. I do have a possible bit of Killjoy to Rich's Killjoy for the story Enemy from the Blitzkrieg book. Regarding weapons, etc., he seems to be taking the tact that the story is set in September 1939. However, from the description, I get the impression that it was actually set during the 1944 Warsaw Uprising. Is there anything in the book that sets the date? If it's the uprising, it would explain the MP40s and Bren guns, wouldn't it? Keep up the good work. Mike in Texas, save for half podcast. And I went back and I reviewed the issue and everything, and I respond with this. While there is no date in the story, the biggest tell for me is the radio station. If it was during the uprising, it probably would be it would probably be a hidden underground station, not something in an above-ground building. And it's what the broadcaster is saying about Warsaw still stands, Warsaw still stands. That also leads me to thinking that about it being 1939. Could I be wrong? Sure. What a healthy debate about comics is what we're here for. Weapon-wise, yes. I'd be willing to give either the 43 Warsaw Ghetto Uprising or 44 Warsaw Uprising a pass with random allied weapons through supply drops, however unlikely. And at the time that we're recording this, we've already recorded a story that had an extensive Warsaw Uprising history minute in it, which you are all undoubtedly tracking by now. All right. I love it. War of the Killjoys. That's certainly what I'm here for. I love it when someone comes on to rebut one of Rich's Killjoys. Just get him. Get him, everybody. Sick him. <laughs> so with all that out of the way, a fantastic episode, a fan, in my opinion, anyway, I did a good job. A fantastic issue of Weird War Tales. Great letters, all that stuff. I'm going to shut my mouth to the relief of all human beings and let Rich hit you with the teaser for the next episode. Weird War Tales number 39. It's what you're here for. Kangaroo courts, pearls of wisdom. I love the army. Why do we even do these teasers? You'll be here either way. I know we will. And to wrap on the Weird Warriors podcast giveaway contest. <sighs> yeah, we went over to. No guesses were even received after the last round of hints. So I still have all those stars for a future attempt at a giveaway. I'm not going to rehash all the clues, so go listen to the end of our last episode for that. Our three honorees are the aforementioned Joe Simon, Rod Serling, and Joe Sinnott. Max and I both had the honor of meeting him at different times and getting signatures. For the purposes of the show, this goes back to our first Road Warriors episode released on July 4th, 2021. When the two of us discussed traveling with Sue Glansman to Joe's gravesite. The episode also covered plans to get Sue and Joe together for their first meeting in years at Albany Comic Con, only to have that con canceled due to COVID, followed by Joe's death only months later. To refer back to one clue, however, Joe Sinnott died June 25th, 2020, and Rod Serling died June 28th, 1975. Quote, quote, three days apart, but in different years. So... Didn't think those were that hard, but what do I know? Hey, give us ideas for a future topic. Hey, as far as I'm concerned, all that uh, failure to receive a winning submission proves is that nobody out there is as big of a nerd 
as you are when it comes to these minutiae. And that's kind of a relief, really. But, you know, <laughs> opinions may differ. But, man, what Rich thinks is easy for a quiz about war figures and, and minutiae and stuff is bound not to be for people with normal functioning brains. So, <laughs> so that aside, I will say, as Rich said, we will be here no matter what next time, because you know what? We're the Weird Warriors. We're the Batland Bros. This is the Weird Warriors podcast, and we promise to make war. No more. Thank you.